and Brittany's not in here. She, she's back at Children's Church, I'm guessing. But um, I just want to publicly thank her for all that she does around here. She does so, so much of the behind-the-scenes stuff. I'm so thankful that she's here, that she's a part of uh, the church and the staff. I never imagined in a million years when we were little kids and I was torturing her and picking on her and pushing her around the table in her baby doll strollers and running her into stuff that that one day we'd be ministering at the same place and she would be writing refrains for old hymns that's just beautiful. Uh, it just gave me chills and goosebumps and I'm just, I'm talking about you, Britt. Amen. I'm uh, just telling everyone how thankful I am for you. Um, so it's, it's, uh, just a wonderful blessing from God uh, to be able to minister with her. So Mark chapter 6, verses 1 through 6 this morning, and I titled it, uh, No Honor, not that the title matters, but just so you know uh, kind of what the, the theme is here. You can find the synoptic account of this going on in Matthew 13, verses 54 through 58. So if you want to kind of cross-reference with of the different events, the details of the story. I went with the Mark 6 account uh, just because I felt like that's what I was supposed to go for. Um, but it's same story, same basic details. Uh, but we ha what we have today is a sad story. Uh, don't like sad stories very much. Um, but we find them all throughout scriptures. Uh, on Wednesday nights, we're going through the Old Testament, and it's just like sad story after sad story. People not listening to God, not obeying God, not following God, and we see just devastation and destruction and consequences. And we see all this going on, but then we get into the New Testament, and we see that these things were recorded for our example to show us so that we can look back and we can, we can learn from history and say, that was a whole bunch of bad choices. I'm not going to make those choices. But it's interesting how we see ourselves so often falling into the same exact stuff that they were dealing with. Like, we can give the nation of Israel a hard time because of their doubt and their fear, but anybody have doubt or fear this week? I mean, you know what I'm saying? We, we see it over and over. But we do have those examples that we can look back and we can, we can draw from. And that's why what God intends us to do is, is to learn from them. So this week we have a group of people rejecting Jesus. Uh, as we look in, in verse 6 of Mark 6, it says, And he marveled because of their unbelief. Speaking of Jesus, he is marveling at the, the unbelief of the people. Scriptures twice record Jesus marveling. For me, it's an interesting thought to think of Jesus marveling, knowing that he is, he is all-knowing. It's interesting to think something happened so crazy that Jesus actually marveled. So when that happens, I really want to pay attention and dig into it and see what's going on there with Jesus, Jesus marveling. The first time we already studied, it was in Luke chapter 7. We see the, that phrase in Luke 7, 9. But he's marveling over the great faith of a centurion. Remember this, this centurion, this, this guy in charge of a hundred soldiers? His son is dying and he just wants Jesus to heal his son from right where he is. And he has the faith Jesus can do it without even going to his house. And Jesus kind of pauses there and marvels at his great faith. Well here, a little further down the ministry of Christ, we see him marveling at a great lack of faith. And that's what we're going to look at today. 
But this is going to take place in Nazareth, in the town where Jesus grew up, among the people that would have known Jesus pretty closely for the first 30 years, give or take, of his life. These people would have known him. But they refuse to believe. They refuse to honor. They openly oppose and reject Jesus as Messiah. Just a sad, sad situation from people who would have known Jesus better than possibly anybody else. And I say the word known with hesitance because they really don't know Jesus, but they, they knew about him. And they would have seen him grow up and they would have seen his character. I mean, could you imagine how the character of someone that is perfect would, would have stood out as a child? I mean, you'd think he would have taken notice. But we, we have these people down the road who are still rejecting Jesus as Messiah. Let's look at the, our text today. Mark 6, 1-6. through six. And he went out from thence and came into his own country, and his disciples followed him. And when the Sabbath day was come, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many hearing him were astonished, saying, From whence hath this man these things? And what wisdom is this which is given unto him? that even such mighty works are wrought by his hands. Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and of Judah and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they were offended at him. But Jesus said unto them, A prophet is not without honor, but in his own country, and among his own kin, and in his own house. And he could there do no mighty work, save that he laid his hands upon a few sick folk and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief, and he went round about the villages teaching. Let's pray together. Dear Father, I thank you that we can look back and we can reflect on this story and we can study the details and, and uh, the different things going on in this text. I pray that you'll give us wisdom. I pray a Holy Spirit, that you'll just work in our hearts and, and bring stuff to our minds and into our lives that, that you want to speak to us about. I pray that you will work in us. I pray that you will just meet with us in a special way today. I pray that we will be open and, and honest and obedient with you today. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So I just want to kind of give you the, the timing of this visit. This trip to Nazareth is following some pretty incredible miracles that Jesus had performed. Remember, we've been looking at them over the last two months. We saw Jesus calm the storm. We saw Jesus cast out the demons. We saw the pigs run off the cliff and dive into the, the water. And sad day for the pig farmers there, that losing all their pigs. Uh, but we see Jesus doing these different miracles, these things going on. We see Jesus heal the woman with the issue of blood for 12 years. She had no hope until she found Jesus. She touched the bottom of his robe and boom, she was healed. And then we have Jesus raising a girl from the dead. Then we have Jesus casting out more demons, helping out these guys who couldn't speak. We have Jesus working. So we have Jesus performing miracles. His, his fame is growing. It's growing so much he's telling people to be quiet about it. Quit, quit spreading the word of, of what I'm doing. Just keep this hushed. Keep this to yourself. Because we know the people are going to want to raise him up and they're going to, some of the people, are going to want to make him the king. Their, their, their temporary earthly king to save them from the Romans. Their military leader, that's what they're looking for. But that's not the purpose Jesus came for. 
One day, he will rule and reign supreme over, over all. He'll take care of all the foes, all the enemies, perfect, perfect new environment. But that is not why he came this time. This time, he came to, to die, to be a sacrifice for the sins, to, to die on the cross, to seek and to save the lost, to prove who he was, to make evidence of his deity, to show that he was the Messiah. So that's what he came for. The people were looking for something else. So we have this going on, his, his following growing. We have his evidences of his deity on display. His fame was spreading. And overall, Jesus was received pretty well to this point. Like people weren't necessarily believing on him as a Messiah, but they at least wanted to follow him around and see what he would do. And they weren't really trying to kill him yet at this point, except for on some separate occasions. But he goes into his hometown here, and it's a much different atmosphere. We have the religious leaders at this point really hating Jesus and starting to be kind of open about it. Remember, they're telling the people that Jesus is operating under the power of Beelzebub, that he's empowered by the devil, his miracles are from the devil. So we have the religious leaders kind of conspiring against Jesus. They were jealous of him. They didn't want him taking their people who were blindly following them. They were jealous of Jesus. So we have the religious leaders not liking Jesus, but in general we have the crowds kind of open to see what Jesus would do. But not in Nazareth. This is Jesus' second recorded time to Nazareth since his earthly ministry started. So we have him growing up there. We have him going away, starting his earthly ministry. We have him coming back before this, and then this is the second time back. I want to remind you how his first visit to Nazareth went. Because it gets pretty crazy. Look at Luke chapter 4. This was following the, the temptation of Jesus when he was tempted in the wilderness. But Luke chapter 4, we'll start in verse 16. And he came to Nazareth. So his first recorded visit back to Nazareth after he started his ministry where he had been brought up, and as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up for to read. So Jesus gets invited to speak in the synagogue. He's a traveling teacher, traveling rabbi. They're honoring him by letting him speak in their synagogue. So he stands up and he reads, And there was delivered unto him the book of the prophet Isaiah, and when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written. So Jesus is reading from Isaiah. He says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He hath sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. And he closed the book and gave it again to the minister and sat down. And the eyes of all them that were in the synagogue were fastened on him. So can you picture this? Jesus gets up in the, in the synagogue and he reads the scripture they have him to read the day. He reads in Isaiah, reading a prophetic writing about himself, a prophecy speaking of the coming Messiah. He closes the book, gives it back to the person in charge, and then he goes and sits down. But all the people, their eyes are just on him, watching him sit down. I just picture the whole congregation like kind of just staring at him like, you got some more for us? And he began to say unto them, This day is the scripture fulfilled in your ears. See what he's doing? He's claiming to be the Messiah 
in the synagogue in front of all these people. He's claiming to be the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy written previously before this. And all bear him witness and wondered at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. And they said, Is not this Joseph's son? And he said unto them, You will surely say unto me this proverb, Physician, heal thyself whatsoever we have heard done in Capernaum, do also here in thy country. And he said, Verily I say unto you, no prophet is accepted in his own country. He's going to say that again in the text we're reading today. But I tell you of a truth, many widows were in Israel in the days of Elias, when the heaven was shut up three years and six months, when great famine was throughout all the land. But unto none of them was Elias sent, save unto Sarepta, a city of Sidon, unto a woman that was a widow. And many lepers were in Israel in the time of Elias the prophet, and none of them was cleansed, saving Naaman the Syrian. And all they in the synagogue, when they heard these things, were filled with wrath, and rose up and thrust him out of the city, and led him unto the brow of the hill whereon their city was built, that they might cast him down headlong. But he passing through the midst of them went his way. Okay, so that's Jesus' first visit to his hometown. You know, coming back, you're the, the Messiah coming into the town where you grew up. You think there'd be like a little joy or happiness of the people. You know, if a professional athlete comes out of a small town, they usually put it on their town sign, like home of whoever. They're pumped about that. They could have written home of the Messiah. But instead, Jesus comes in and they reject him to the point where they drag him out of the synagogue and they want to chuck him off of a hill and kill him. But Jesus kind of just walks right out of there. He's gone, okay? He's out of Nazareth. Now our, our text today, we have Jesus coming back. Pretty brave, I think. Yes, he's all-powerful God, but we have him coming back to a city where they previously tried to kill him. Uh, this will be the, the final recorded time we have Jesus coming to Nazareth. But it's interesting we have Jesus coming back and trying again to reach out to his hometown. Let's look at verse 1. And he went out from thence and came unto his own country, and his disciples followed him. So Jesus had left Capernaum. He's leaving there. He's heading towards Nazareth. Nazareth was 25 miles southwest of Capernaum. It was a small, insignificant village in Jesus' day. Uh, you can grow up hearing about Nazareth and at least in my mind, you think of this big, big thriving town or city where Jesus would have been from. But come to find out, it's a small, small town, small village of about 500 people. So this little insignificant village. His disciples go with him. And I think that's important because we find out that, that uh Jesus isn't just going here for some private family time to see his mom and brothers and sisters. We have Jesus going here with a purpose. He's bringing his disciples with him, and they're going to get some very valuable lessons taught to them. So his disciples are, are trailing him here. They're going to see the hard-hearted rejection by the people of Jesus from his own hometown, and it would help prepare them for the rejection that they would face. Because remember, these, these disciples, Jesus was training them over these three years, three and a half years, 
for when he left for them to carry on his ministry. Amen. So they're going to learn some very hard lessons here, but they get to learn them alongside of Jesus before they face them on their own. Verse 2, And when the Sabbath day was come, he began to teach in the synagogue. So Jesus goes back to the synagogue, and he's going he's to give it a try again. And many hearing him were astonished, saying, From whence hath this man these things? And what wisdom is this which is given unto him, that even such mighty works are wrought by his hands? So we have Jesus going back, teaching in the synagogue. Uh, remember that Jesus is operating under the will of his Father. He was always about his Father's business. He was always completely obedient to his Father. So it might not make logical sense of Jesus, why do you go back where people just want to kill you? Well, he was being obedient, and, and God, his Father, had a plan for him to be here. Many of the people that listened were astonished. That word astonished means struck with amazement, which makes sense. I mean, you can break the word down, and it's what we would call like their minds were blown by the teaching of Jesus. But doesn't that make sense because God is teaching here? He has that, that impact, that ability, that, that clarity, that depth of thought where we can't even wrap our mind around who he is and, and what he's saying, what he has to say. Jesus spoke with truth, absolute truth, with power, with authority. And we have other places recorded where when Jesus taught people, are like, well, this isn't what we're used to. You actually know what you're talking about. And you have authority, and you teach with such power and clarity. They were amazed, but they still didn't believe. So it's like, wow, Jesus, you're saying some pretty amazing things here, but I'm, I can't believe in you. I'm, I'm not going to believe in you. They continued to reject. Their hearts stayed hard. They were hearing the most amazing teacher ever. Their minds were blown with amazement at what he was saying, but their response was rejection. And we saw what they said in verse 2. From whence hath this man these things? Where did he get this message? Where did he get this power? Where did he get this wisdom? How does he perform these miracles? These people are just amazed at Jesus. But they can't believe in him. They won't believe in him. They reject him. And in my mind, it's like, sarcastically, it can't be because he's actually the Messiah, because he's actually who he claims to be. That's, that's probably where he's getting all this power, because he's from God, because he is God, because he is the true Messiah. But Jesus didn't have this rabbinical training, but Jesus still taught in such a way that he stunned even the most educated scribes of the time. And he left, those, he left them dumbfounded. His wisdom and his miracles proved that he was from God. His power, his teaching, his miracles, his following drove the hard-hearted religious leaders crazy. Look at, look at Luke. We have a few scriptures to turn to today. Which is a good thing. Luke chapter 19, verses 47 and 48. 
speaking of Jesus, and he taught daily in the temple, but the chief priests and the scribes and the chief of the people sought to destroy him. You see that? The leaders trying to destroy him. And he could not find what they might do, for all the people were very attentive to hear him. So we have these leaders angry and jealous of Jesus. All the people want to hear him, want to listen to him. We have the wisdom and the works of Jesus giving evidence that he was indeed the Son of God, that he was the Messiah, but the hard-hearted people still looked for a reason to reject. And they would even resort to claims that he was operating under the power of the devil. The people of Nazareth didn't respond that way here, but they were not willing to acknowledge that his power came from God. And their doubt that they have, this doubt that we can see, rears itself in the form of a question. So they're, they're doubting, they're rejecting, and in, in their mind, the way they're going to try to justify this rejection of these clear facts, of this clear evidence, is they are going to come up with some bogus reasons for why Jesus can't be the Messiah. They said, where did this man get these things? They were looking for any explanation but the obvious. They were looking for where he got his power, but he told them where he got his power. He got them from God because he was the Messiah. But they're looking for where did this power come from? They had more than enough evidence, but they continued to reject. Look at the details that the people focus on to justify their disbelief in verse number 3. Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and Judah and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they were offended at him. Yes, they were amazed at his teaching and his miracles, but they refused to believe that he was the Lord, the Savior, the Messiah. They couldn't believe that this carpenter from their little village with no specialized theological education or religious credentials could be the Messiah. Think about this. The questions they raised were basically true, but they had no bearing on the reality that Jesus was the Messiah. They actually, some of them pointed to the fact that he was the Messiah. They called him the son of Mary. She's from the line of David. That was promised prophecy of the Messiah would be from the line of David. So their own questions could have helped answer their, what they were looking for. Instead of believing in Jesus and praising God that the Messiah was from their little town, they rejected and they mocked. Isn't Jesus just a carpenter? We have him saying, typically the father would teach the son their trade growing up. We still find that today. But we know Joseph was a carpenter, so we have Joseph teaching Jesus his trade, and, and we'd have them working together. So they recognized Jesus as just a carpenter. They had a hard time believing that this, this carpenter from their little town could be the Messiah. Uh, Jesus, this one kind of, I thought of it as I was studying. Jesus had probably done projects on their houses. He had probably, as a young man, had put an addition on their house or had built some of the farm implements that they would use. So they would have known Jesus. They would have known his character and his work. They would have known what he had done. But they just couldn't receive him as the Messiah. Then they call him the son of Mary. I said that kind of points to the fact that he really is the Messiah. But why would they use that term, son of Mary? 
Typically, you'd be, get the name of your father, the son of Joseph. A couple reasons people kick around is maybe Joseph had died at this point, so they're just looking to marry. Or maybe in their scorn, in their rejection, they were pointing to alleged um, illeg- illegitimacy of Jesus. So the fact that Joseph wasn't his father and you know Mary had made some bad choices is what they could have been referring to. I'm not sure what it is they point to Jesus as the, the son of Mary trying to justify in their minds why Jesus couldn't be the Messiah. They reference his half-brothers. It's interesting because even his brothers had a hard time believing in him. They, they, re, they rejected him for a while. They didn't believe until later. I, I want to show you this real quick because it's interesting putting all this stuff together. John 7, 5. Speaking of Jesus' brothers, says, For neither did his brethren believe in him. So in their minds, they could have been saying, Jesus, even your own brothers don't believe in you, so why, are we, why should we believe in you as Messiah if your brothers don't believe in you? But when you get to Acts, chapter 1, verse 14, these all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the woman and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brethren. So at some point we have Jesus' brothers coming to Christ, coming to him as Messiah, and believing on him. So that's wonderful, the rest of the story there, with his brothers actually believing on him. So his brothers believed, and they would eventually become influential in the early church. Then the people also reference his half-sisters, Um, His family is nothing special. They don't even believe in Him. Why should we believe in Jesus as the Messiah? They are overlooking the evidence using non-issues to back up their rejection of Jesus. They were offended at Him. They start out with amazement, with wonder, and now they are doubting. Now they're getting angry. They didn't like the message that this simple hometown carpenter was giving. They didn't like the truths that he was pointing to, the truths that he represented. That word offended, they were offended at him. The Greek word kind of explains what it, what it means. The Greek root word, or the Greek word is scandalizo. Find a, find a word we use? Yeah. Scandalize. They thought Jesus was a phony and that he was trying to trick them by claiming to be the Messiah. They thought that it was a big scandal that he was doing. It really paints a picture of what they thought about Jesus. That he was a phony liar from small town Nazareth. Just a plain old carpenter. Jesus' disciples were witnessing this whole thing. And this is where I kind of like to step back and think about myself in this story. If, if you're following Jesus and you're, you're learning from him and, and you see kind of what it's going to be like when Jesus is gone, and you have the Messiah standing in front of people, and they won't believe in Him, I wonder what their thoughts were. It was like, oh man, when He's gone and we're trying to tell people, how's that going to go for us? Do you think that would maybe make you consider what you were, what you were doing there and what was going on? We have these disciples standing with Jesus, observing their Lord getting treated this way. 
It could have frustrated them. It could have scared them. could have made them nervous. could have gave them more fire and more passion. I don't know. But we have the disciples witnessing this. Jesus calls the crowd out on what they are doing. Look at verse 4. But Jesus said unto them, A prophet is not without honor, but in his own country, and among his own kin, and in his own house. This would have been a common, well-known saying, a, a proverb that the people would have known. The crowd, his own family, his own neighbors, people that would have seen him grow up, people that would have seen him perfectly respond to every situation, even as a child, are now face to face with him, but they're still doubting and rejecting him. They are angry and they think that he is a liar. And Jesus calls them out. And he says, you know that saying a prophet is not without honor except his own country? Well, that's what you guys are doing right now. Jesus would later warn the disciples that they should expect this persecution as well. John 15 Verses 18 and 20. It's not new news to us. We're, we're familiar with this thought. But I'd like to think of these disciples in their, their training course coming to grips with this. That man, Jesus faces rejection and persecution and we're going to face the same thing. John 15, verse 18. If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. Verse 20, remember the word that I said unto you, the servant is not greater than his Lord. If they have persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they have kept my saying, they will keep yours also. So we have Jesus giving this, this foresight to his disciples where, hey, the world's going to hate you. The world's not going to like your message. The world's not going to like this truth that you had. They persecuted me. You're not greater than me. They're going to persecute you as well. So he gives his disciples this warning. When the truth of Christ cannot be refuted, when people do not like the truth, how do people respond? I mean, because we can see this, fast forward to today, we see this everywhere. When people don't like the truth, people will attack. I, I saw a video of this guy handing out Bibles, and this guy said, if you don't leave, I'm going to make you leave by taking your life. The guy keeps passing out Bibles, and he's not saying a word, he's just passing out Bibles to these people. This guy runs back in the screen later, kicks the guy over, kicks his table over. Just, he didn't like the truth that this man had. So his response was anger. And he was going to take out frustration because he could not refute the truth. So when people don't like the truth, they'll attack. They'll ridicule. People will mock. People will turn to violence. In your, in your own time, look ahead to John 11, verses 47 through 53. Because you're going to see what, what the religious leaders would eventually resort to. They would come to the place where their only way they can silence Jesus is to kill him. They thought. They killed him and he still hasn't been silenced 2,000 years later. It didn't work. Look at verse 5. And he could there do no mighty work. Isn't that such a sad thought? They had the most powerful God, the true God in front of them, could have done anything 
but they rejected him and no mighty work was done there? The issue was not a lack of power on God's part. Jesus was still all-powerful, almighty God. His miracles were evidence that his claims were true. So Jesus had the power to perform miracles, and his miracles served in a way where they would prove that he was the Messiah. The people of Nazareth had already made up their minds about him, that you can't be the Messiah, you're not the Messiah. So there was no need for him to go around doing miracles. The purpose of miracles was not to entertain. Jesus didn't come to entertain and say, hey, look what I can do. I can make you see. I can make you hear. I can make you come back to life. Look what I can do. That was not the purpose of Jesus' ministry. He came to seek and to save the lost. And he found this group of people, his own close people, and they rejected him. And his response wasn't to stand around doing a bunch of miracles that they would still not believe in him. But it's interesting because it says, save that he laid his hands upon a few sick folk and healed them. So Jesus still showed some compassion and some grace and some mercy there to those people. He gave grace and mercy even in a hostile situation. Then we get to verse 6. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went round about the villages teaching. So these people had years of access to Jesus. They had ample evidence that he was who he claimed to be, that he was the Messiah, yet they stubbornly rejected him. Jesus moves on and he starts teaching in other villages. So he's out of his own town and he goes on and he continues to minister to other people who may listen, who may, who may care, who may actually believe in him. It's just, it's sad. It's kind of depressing actually to get to the end of the story because we have a bunch of people rejecting Jesus. It's sad that anyone would reject Jesus. And here we have this group of people steeped in religion. Stuck in their religion, they think that they have it figured out. They think that they do not need this one claiming to be Messiah. They thought they could figure it out, out on their own and wait for the Messiah that they wanted. But they rejected the Christ, the Messiah the one who could forgive them, who could heal them from their, their sin problem. They have the true deliverer, the only true deliverer right in front of them, and they reject the truth, they reject the relationship because it wasn't what they wanted it to be, and they reject it. Man, don't we see that today? People not wanting to hear the truth, not wanting to admit the fact that and I do have a sin problem, and my good will never outweigh my bad. And I can't be at a right standing with God on my own. A lot of people don't want to admit that. But the thing is, is it's still truth, and, and we still need Jesus. We still need the Messiah. The only possible payment to make us right before God. But that message is rejected. Also in here, a little more positive note. 
I love to see the patience and the compassion of Jesus on display. He came here once. He came to Nazareth once. He knew how it was going to be the second time. But he still went, and he still tried, and he still proclaimed truth. And he still worked in the lives of some people. The people tried to kill him the first time, and he still went back. We see his compassion. And then another thing that jumped out was don't be shocked by the way the world handles the truth. Jesus said it was coming. Jesus said people would respond that way. We shouldn't be shocked when the world actually acts like the world. And they do the things that sin causes people to do. It should not be mind-blowing, the condition of the world and the horrible things going on, the unspeakable things that people are doing and calling right and calling acceptable and okay. That shouldn't shock us. Because God tells us that they're going to act that way. God tells us those things are going to happen. God tells us how the world will handle the truth. I'm thankful that Jesus came. That Jesus is the true Messiah. That Jesus Christ paid that sin debt that I could not pay that he died, and that he was buried, and that he rose again. I'm so thankful for that. And I want to be faithful to thank him for that, and to share that what he has done with other people, regardless of how people might respond or, or might react. Because Jesus is the true Messiah, and Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Many people will reject, but it doesn't change the fact that he is the true Messiah and the world needs him. Let's pray together.